Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. My reading this week was interrupted by an emergency trip to the dentist. I can read almost anywhere, and even when I can't, I can at least listen to audiobooks, but not in the dentist's chair, I'm afraid. I certainly can't read, and with the drill going, I can barely hear myself think. There's nothing to be done but to lie there and wait for it all to be over. One of the great things about being a reader is that you don't just look forward to all the books you've yet to read, you can also look back on all the ones you've read already. And so, for some reason, with the sound of the drill overhead, my mind went to the marvelous Nero Wolf Mysteries by Rex Stout. Nero Wolf is one of the great detectives in literature, and generations of readers have fallen in love with him. One of his great passions is orchids. I cared very little for them before I read Stout's Mysteries, but ended up finding them fascinating, even if I've yet to succeed in getting one to bloom myself. While lying in the dentist chair, I engaged in my own form of mindful meditation, trying to ignore the whine of the drill and thinking instead of all the orchids I've ever seen, in friends' homes, in botanical gardens, and in the pages of Rex Stout's wonderful novels. Before I knew it, the dental work was done. Books enrich my life in so many ways, and sometimes I learn about things to love from characters and authors who share that love with me. On the way home, I decided I deserved a little treat for my fortitude. So I bought myself a Rex Stout novel I hadn't read, and an orchid, too. And recently, I got to talking about the way the simple pleasures of certain authors burrow into our hearts with today's guest. I'm Christy Coulter, and I'm the author of the essay collection, Nothing Good Can Come From This. Christy Coulter is a Seattle-based writer whose work has appeared in the Paris Review, The All, the Mississippi Review, and other places, too. Her memoir, Nothing Good Can Come From This, was published this summer. In it, she writes about her pre- and post-sober days in equal measure with a trademark wit that set her apart ever since she was a kid. I was a little bit of a fish out of water. I was—I would say I was a, a childhood where I was kind of always looking at the people around me going, I'm not like you. Why am I not like you? How can I be like you? <laughs> Never figured it out. I grew up mostly in South Florida, in Boca Raton, Florida, and it was a sleepy little beach town of about 30,000 people, nothing going on. By the time I was 18, I think there were about 200,000 people, so it exploded. It was a lot of like popped collars, boat shoes, yachts. It got so that my school bus was constantly going in and out of gated communities. Everything was really ostentatious, big gold chains. It was the 80s also. So, you know, the odds of good taste were against us to begin with. But linen blazers, kids getting Mercedes on their 16th birthdays. It was all kind of very glitzy. Christy, whose parents were academics, always felt like she lived life a little bit on the margins of that glitz. In a town filled with boat shoes, she was a bookworm who just wanted to stay inside. I read everything. I would have these projects, like when there would be bookathons or readathons, like my mother would warn the neighbors, you know, be careful what you pledge <laughs> because she's going to hand you a big bill at the end. 
I was obsessed with this one series of books by Elizabeth Enright about the Melendi family. They were this family of like World War II kids. Their mother was dead because the mother's always dead. And they moved to the country with their father. And they were this sort of bohemian family who like put on shows and I think had their own radio drama and were finding hidden treasure. And I must have read those books 10 times. And I still read them every few years as an adult because they're just absolutely beautifully written. I got a lot of them from the public library and the school library. My mother went in to the school library and said, you need to let her take out books for the fourth and fifth graders too. I started reading when I was three, I think. So I was really make, plowing my way through. And soon, books weren't the only form of entertainment Christy found herself diving into. It was the summer of 1986. The movie Pretty in Pink came out, the John Hughes film, and it had this great soundtrack with, I think the Smiths were on it, New Order, a lot of like the bands that are iconic now. And I just felt like I found something great. And I felt like I found something that was a big secret. And it really did open up my world. And I suddenly became cool for the first time in my life. I wasn't like the kind of geeky, weird chick that no one could figure out on the margins. Like I was sort of you know, popular in my way. And it kind of set me on this path of looking for things that were a little bit different or just not waiting for like culture to be handed to me, kind of going and finding it. And back in the library, one afternoon when she was a teenager, Christy came upon a book that would have an outsized impact on her future. I came across Happy All the Time by Lori Colwyn pretty randomly at my public library. I think I was just browsing the stacks, and for some reason my hand, you know, I saw that book and my hand landed and I picked it up and took it home. And I think we, the library probably had, she'd written three or four, maybe five books at that point. I think I'd read them all within a month because I fell in love with Happy All the Time so much. While Lori Colwyn is best known for her food writing, she also wrote novels and short stories. Happy All the Time, her third novel, took a look at two couples and their relationships. There's not a ton of plot. It's very interior. She's a very Jane Austenish writer. The stakes are you know, low in some ways, like no one's getting sick, no one's dying, no one's poor, no one's life is falling apart, but they're all desperately in love. And so in some ways, the stakes don't get higher than that. Her sentences are perfect. I was writing seriously already at that age, and I think something about the, the, the musicality of her sentences and how low-key and funny she was in a way that was very cerebral just really appealed to me. I also think she dealt with domesticity and happiness in a very serious way. She took these subjects seriously and that really appealed to me and part of it is where I grew up. You know, I was in this very glitzy new place where no building was older than, I mean 50 years would have been extreme. And she's writing about this kind of old you know, old style New York where they're going to Nantucket, <laughs> you know, they're, they're wearing tweed. And I found all that very glamorous. In South Florida, even Christmas is a little strange if you're a kid because all the iconography is snow and, and, you know, roasted chestnuts. And you're going to the water park in December. I mean, it's just a very different life. So I kind of fetishized these tropes of what I thought of as like real America, which is only above the Mason-Dixon line, <laughs> you know, where it was cold. And and so I really fell into that world. And though the plot was simple, 
Happy All the Time's immediate impact on Christie was not. I knew it sort of struck a chord in me. I couldn't have articulated why, but I knew that it just made everything about me sort of wake up. And it's funny. I'm glad I could recognize that because it's not at all what you would think of as an, an important book. And in high school, you know, we were mostly reading men and it was always huge stakes of war books and or books about are you going to catch that fish and feed your family? And and this was people who really today we would say, oh, they're first world problems. What do they have to complain about? And so I'm really glad I was able to sort of get past all these built in prejudices I had and to say, no, I really love these people. I really care about them. Like what they want matters. After I read Happy All the Time, I thought about my own writing differently. I I realized that writing about, quote, small things could be really interesting, that I didn't have to strive to make up stories that I really didn't have to tell yet, that just a conversation two people had could mean a lot. I realized that being funny was hard <laughs> and worth trying for and that there were different ways to be funny. And she was obsessed with small sort of homey things like the perfect roast chicken or a chocolate cake. And so I started thinking about the things around me differently. And when I went to college and was able to start kind of forming my own taste, I would really think like, oh, yeah, this is my perfect coffee mug. This is my mug. And and really kind of curating my life. And I don't know that I would have done that without her. And I still think about it that way. Sometimes I, I just think, oh, I made this chicken and it's in this dish and it looks so pretty. And Lori Colwyn would probably approve of this. Like, I very much would like her to approve of me, wherever she is. <laughs> When we come back from the break, Lori Colwyn's humor and wit continue to influence Christie, especially as she begins writing her own story. When Christie Coulter found Lori Colwyn's Happy All the Time, it painted the picture of a life she could have, a life full of good food and simple pleasures and smart conversation far from the glitzy South Florida town where she'd grown up. And as she settled into adult life, Christy found herself returning to her favorite book as a source of joy and inspiration when things got tough. I was in Paris for work. I had the weekend free, and I was very unhappy. And I hated Paris. (laughs) I had been in Paris a few times and just never had a good time. My my job there was kind of depressing. And I woke up that morning, and as usual, I had, you know, a low-grade hangover and just felt really sad. And and I just thought, oh, poor me, I'm in Paris for the weekend. (laughs) And just felt so sorry for myself. So I thought, is there anything you can do to rescue this day? And what I always do when I'm feeling bad in my own city or especially a foreign city is I find a bookstore. I looked up the Village Voice books, which closed a few years ago, which makes me sad. It was an incredible bookstore. All English language books went down there and I did my my bookstore test, which is I always check to see if they have Laurie Colwyn's novels. They can't just have the, the food books, they have to have the novels, and they had all of her novels. And I thought, oh boy, this is this is great. And I bought Happy All the Time, and I spent all day reading it. First, I sat down close to the store and read it on a park bench, and then I read some in a cafe, and then I think I read some on the metro. And it just absolutely turned my day around. Partly, it was being enveloped in that world, 
and starting to see sort of the pretty things around me the way she might have seen them. And also, I think it was just giving myself permission to do that. Um, like, no, you don't have to go see the Eiffel Tower. You can just sit here and read this book if you want to. That is fine. And at the end of the day, I got off the metro at the Tuileries because I wanted ice cream. And I walked up the steps and I was in the middle of a carnival or what they would call a fun fair. And it was like this Disney moment. Like, I don't know that I'll ever have a moment like that again, where it just felt like the perfect thing had happened. And I was so happy and it smelled like cotton candy. And, uh, and I just sort of fell in love with Paris at that moment. And, and now I love Paris. And I, I credit it to that day. That day really changed things for me. But there were other, more difficult changes looming in Christie's life. I started drinking when I was about 16. Before that, I was kind of a nervous kid who I was anxious about the idea of there being a keg at a party I went to. And I would hold a beer and not touch it all night. I think it's also just, I just don't like beer. Um, but when I was 16, I was at a party, a pool party, and someone gave me a wine cooler. And, oh, my God, my teeth feel fuzzy just thinking about it. And I drank it, and I, and I suddenly felt much more sociable. And, like, I could talk to boys. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And I think from then on, when I would go to parties, I would I would drink wine coolers or Strawberry Hill wine. And then eventually, you know, actual alcohol. My dad was a science professor, computer science professor, and he had a lot of students in the Middle East who would give him bottles of liquor from their homelands at Christmas. So a lot of it was like licorice, anise-flavored stuff, and they would just put it in the liquor cabinet, and no one drank it. And so I would sneak that. And that I should have known then because I hated the way it tasted. It's like, okay, if you're willing to drink this, something is wrong, you know? And as an adult, Christy reached a point where she decided to take action. Eventually, I was worrying about my drinking all the time. I mean, 24-7, I think it was on my mind. Even when I was drinking or drunk, I was worried about my drinking, which you're really getting to the point where, like, why bother? And there was no big dramatic moment. You know, I didn't have, like, a DUI or lose a job or anything like that. I was really good at holding it together. But I got so tired of worrying about drinking, and it hit me one day, the one thing you could do to stop worrying about drinking is to stop drinking. And I was like, but no, 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 I don't want to do that. But it was like the voice of God saying, there is this thing. There's one thing you haven't tried. And I thought about that for about another week. And, and, the, and I had actually Googled the phrase, tired of thinking about drinking, and got to a website called that. And I thought, oh, so it's not just me. And so that website had a 100-day pledge that you could take where you would just – it's just a community thing. I'm not going to drink for 100 days. So I went there maybe a week after having this revelation, and I took the pledge and said I wasn't going to drink for 100 days. And it really was just this moment of realizing, like, if you want to kill this worry, you need to actually stop the thing making you worry. It, I had kept waiting to want to stop. Like I kept thinking, well, when my anxiety gets better, I'll drink less or I'll quit. When I get less depressed, I'll drink less or I'll quit. I was doing it backwards. I quit when I did not want to. And then I got a lot less anxious and depressed, like within weeks. Christy began to write about her sobriety. And it turned into her memoir, Nothing Good Can Come From This. It's kind of a prismatic look at different aspects of drinking and sobriety. It really is a series of looks at just moments in my life that were 
impacted by drinking. And then particularly um, the moments in my life where sobriety really defined itself for me. I, I wanted to focus on sobriety because there's not a lot out there in the in addiction literature about sobriety. A lot of the memoirs, and including some very, very good ones, drink, 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 you know, hit bottom in a big way. And then, oh, and then I surrendered my power and, you know, I got better and everything is fine now. Um, and I thought, but you're just getting started. And it gets so much more interesting once you get sober. Um, drinking is, when you're drinking the way I was, it's really boring. It's really monotonous. Sober life for me is fascinating. Um, you're basically, you've given up the one thing you think you need to get by in life. And like, what do you do then? Like, I thought that's suspenseful. So that's what I wanted to, to focus on. And Lori Colwin's signature wit and way of looking at the world had an impact on her writing process. Her sort of very droll, low-key sense of humor has just has been a part of my life for so long now. Like, things will happen that are funny, and I'll actually find myself thinking, it's like she's my friend. I'll find myself thinking, oh, she would think this was funny. Or, you know, she wouldn't, she would just roll her eyes at this or something. And, um... I wanted this book to be affectionate about myself. I didn't. I wanted to, you know, show my my bad sides, but I didn't want to rake myself over the coals unnecessarily. And so there was this kind of affectionate humor, and also, you know, you. I knew if I did not go into sobriety willing to laugh at things, that I was not going to make it. I I was really afraid for years that if I quit, I would have to become some different kind of person who was very earnest. You know, recited affirmations, uh, very, very serious. I just had this this image of what it's like to be sober that wasn't really accurate. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of that. So when I got sober, I thought I have to keep my irreverence and I have to keep my sense of humor. And I had to find it funny. I mean, you're in all these weird situations suddenly where you're a total fish out of water. Nothing's right. You have no idea what to do. And it, you're not going to, you you just have to find it funny. <laughs> I guess there's other way to, ways to live. But for me, it was like, no, I need to do this. And so I also wanted to show other people that it could be funny, that they're not necessarily looking at a life where, you know, you've suddenly joined a cult or something that, that, you know, you're going to still be you. You're going to be more you, honestly, because you're not like altering your nervous system <laughs> and that, and that that was okay. When I was thinking about which book to talk about at first, I did think of things like To the Lighthouse, you know, things that like stylistically or really profoundly changed my view of the, the world or what it meant to be a woman or something. This one, ultimately, I thought, no, this one changed me the most. And I think it's because it almost, I find it today almost rebellious for a writer, especially a female writer, to write about domestic life or to write about things that are not what we would traditionally consider high stakes. I don't think she thought of herself this way at the time, but that it was something radical about saying, no, I'm going to, this is what I care about. I'm going to claim it and write about this and not try to make myself into a writer I'm not. And it actually influenced the way that I, I wrote my book, which is that I thought I'm not going to make the story of my drinking more dramatic than it was. And I'm going to make my the story of my sobriety very everyday because that's exactly what it was like. So I think she gave me the courage to stick with what was actually true for me, whether the world of judge it as being, you know, big or meaty or enough or not. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson, with editing help from Alyssa Martino 
Alex Abnos, and Becky Celestina. Thanks to Christy Coulter and Daphne Durham. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Macmillan, our publisher. This year, Macmillan turned 175 years old. And to celebrate, we brought together Macmillan employees to share their favorite stories of working here. From publishing best-selling books. And I just remember seeing them across the concourse. And I started running up to them. I'm like, you're number one, you're number one. And we all started jumping up and down. To making a difference in the world. Of all the books that I've worked on, I feel like this book more than any other has changed people's lives. And that's an incredible opportunity. To the impact working here has on our own lives. You know, being at Macmillan was kind of a big part of our story to begin with. We officially listed our location on the marriage certificate as the Flatiron Building, and we couldn't find any others that matched in the records, so. So we're just gonna go ahead and say that we're the first to actually get married in the Flatiron Building. (laughs) (laughs) Macmillan, bringing authors and readers together since 1843. For more stories of our long-standing history in the publishing business, follow us on social at MacmillanUSA. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N-U-S-A.